Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 300 CTOs that share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insight into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the edge cloud movement. In one of the next podcasts, I will talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly CTO, about WebAssembly and the edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Toby, and uh, today I'm very, very excited to have uh, David Heinemeyer Hensen with me. He's the CTO of Basecamp, inventor of Ruby on Rails, a guy who does a lot of things. Um, I, I highly admire him since, I think, uh, 2005 uh, when I stumbled into his framework, and boy, I'm still addicted. And first of all, he is very, very passionate. I think a few, one, uh, a few guys of you might know him. Some of the newer tech topic, he's sometimes opinionated, I would say. He revolutionized the, the world of frameworks. Um, and um, I think he was a role model for a whole generation of rockstar developers. I want to try to push a few of his buttons today and uh, make him swear out loud, hopefully. So from Copenhagen to California, maybe, David, you could tell us a bit more about your nerd path and how you actually got into programming and uh, a bit more about your, your history. Sure. Um, first, I got to say, now that you've uh, dared me to swear, of course, I'm going to try incredibly hard not to bring a single curse word to, to discussion. That's, uh, that's really how I end up swearing, is, is when people don't want me to swear. So now when people want me to swear... It's not going to be any swearing. Anyway, um, history, short history. Uh, I was kind of late to programming. I was not a programmer since I was six years old, even though I actually tried to program when I was six years old, typing in a program from the back of a magazine on my Armstrad 464. That didn't work. It took uh, all morning and it didn't work and I couldn't find the error and I thought programming was dumb. So... I, I gave up on that at six years old. And then I tried again at, I think, maybe 12 or 13 to learn programming. This was EC Amos, uh, a programming language for creating games on the Amiga back in the um, early 90s. And that didn't stick either. I could not figure it out. I didn't like math that much. And after those two experiences, I decided simply that programming must not have been for me. Because even though I loved computers, I loved playing with computers, I loved video games, um, I wasn't all that interested in vectors. I wasn't all that interested in assembler. I wasn't all that interested in low-level programming of any kind. So fast forward a few years, I start working with the internet. 
um, and I start building things for the internet, gaming websites, as it were, and slowly get roped into just that tiny bit of programming at a time. A little bit of HTML, a little bit of CSS. Um, then I was working with some other programmers and couldn't quite get them to do what I wanted done fast enough. So I was like, ah, let me look into this ASP.NET and then a little bit of PHP. And then a couple of years later, uh, I ended up... Uh, essentially making programming programs, right? I, I ended up doing stuff for the web. And after having done that for a while, I realized, hey, wait a minute, this is actually nothing like programming in assembler. This is nothing like trying to make games in Amos. This is something that suits me, building information systems. That is right up my alley. This feels a whole lot more like writing then it feels like math. And writing was something I was really interested in and thought I could be good at. So I kind of made the transition to thinking programming possibly could be something for me, but it really was not until I encountered Ruby that it became definitive. I did my first commercial programming for Jason Fried, who's now my business partner, back in 2001, uh, a series of PHP projects. And even at that time, I wasn't like, oh, wow, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, PHP was more just a tool that I used to get the things I wanted, which was web applications. Skip a couple of years forward, 2003, we start working on Basecamp, the uh, software that still runs today and is the backbone of our company, Basecamp. And I start working on that in Ruby because I had the opportunity to pick whatever programming language I wanted to use, whatever platform I wanted to use. And I'd been following leaders in the field for a while who'd been saying very nice things about uh, Ruby, people like Martin Fowler and Dave Thomas, uh, who'd been writing about using Ruby, even if they weren't building commercial systems with it, they were using it to explain programming techniques and, and paradigms. So I thought, hey, here's some really smart guys who would pick Ruby if they had the choice. They don't really have the choice. I have the choice. I'm not that smart, but I can certainly listen to smart guys. And I gave it a shot. And it really, I'd say within two weeks, I realized first, Ruby was so much more appealing to me than any programming language I'd ever worked in before that not only could I see myself building an entire system like Basecamp in it, I could see an entire career in it, which is quite remarkable because at that point I'd been programming for a number of years in PHP and I tried some ASP, I'd done a little bit of Java and never had that, right? I'd had an interest in building information systems and, and that was all good and fun. But this encounter with Ruby was really my eureka moment in terms of a career tra trajectory, in terms of finding a place and a path in technology that I could be not just comfortable with, but truly and deeply excited by. And that was the, 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 the flip of the switch where I went like, holy shit, this is totally awesome. I love doing this. I want to do this more. I want to learn everything. Um, I think that was perhaps really the thing that opened my lid was this idea that Ruby was a path. 
it was like I, I started pulling on, on a piece of thread and I could just see it go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was like, metaprogramming, what's that? Domain-specific languages, what's that? Let's keep diving. Let's keep going deeper. And so I did. And it turned out to be um, the turning point of my career, my working life, to um, get involved with Ruby, to build Basecamp. The application, as I said, that's that's still the cornerstone of our business, something I've been working on ever since, which is now, what is that, 17, 18 years? And uh, ultimately, Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails was my first real open source project. And it came out directly of that encounter with Ruby trying to build Basecamp in it and finding it just to be such a wonderful experience that I almost felt... Um, like I had discovered something, right? You, you feel like, hey, wait a minute, guys, look over here. Look what I found. This fucking thing is amazing. I have to tell the world about this. Like there are people walking around right now. There's programmers programming who don't know about Ruby. Um, that seems like a travesty. So it felt like an obligation to spread the good word of the discovery that I'd made, which at that time, 2003, was a bit of a discovery, right? Like it wasn't like there was a huge Ruby scene. Uh, there was a very small Ruby scene, in fact. I showed up at the first, oh, not first, third international Ruby conference in the US, which had, I think, like 40 people, 38 people, something like that. And I presented um, Ruby on Rails at that conference. And at that conference, I asked, uh, who's working with Ruby professionally of the people here? My hand went up because Jason was paying me $15 an hour to make Basecamp. And one other hand went up. Everyone else was there simply because they loved the language. They wanted to see it grow. It was an intellectual pursuit. But that just gives you a sense of the scale, right? Like it was very small scale at that time, particularly in, in the U.S., which is sort of funny because the language was not new, right? Matt had created back in the mid-90s. Um, so by the time I picked it up, the language was already was that going to be six years old or something like that? Um, but it hadn't really broken through in, in the West. And, and thankfully, it wouldn't take too much longer before it did. Because we went from that Ruby conference in 2004 to a Rails conference in, I think, 2006, just a couple of years later, that had 2,000 people there. The vast majority of them were professional developers very short period of time, we went from complete uh, obscurity as a language, as a as a thing Dave Thomas or, or Martin Fowler would use to explain techniques in in IEEE magazine or something else like that, to something people were building real systems with um, at their say scale, like real business stuff, right? I I was doing it. Tons of other people were doing it, and we got into this really fast trajectory and. That is basically the, the founding story of how I got both to programming to Ruby and onto the tracks of Rails. Wow. You answered like the first 10 of my questions, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and, and besides that, you have a hobby race driving or you had a hobby race driving. I think you gave up on that, right? Um, uh, it, how does that compare to, to programming? Well, the funny thing is I'm actually sitting here in Copenhagen uh, in not my own apartment, but a second apartment because I'm quarantining from just returning from a race, 12 hours of Sebring that I attended this week. So not quite over with it yet. Let's see where that goes. But um, 
racing is is an interesting uh, parallel to me because I found a lot of um, similarities between programming and racing. Um, doesn't perhaps strike you on the surface as those two fields should should share a lot, but they do. They are both um, often about optimizing a closed system. So when you're driving a race car, you have this machine um, that's going around a track in about a minute and a half, two minutes at the most racetracks, and you can try new things. It's a closed loop where you can experiment, and you're like, oh, let me try to take this corner a little different. Oh, I just went two-tenths of a second faster. That worked. Let's try something similar somewhere else. Let's look at the data. Let's look at the traces. Let's look at how other people are doing it. The learning mechanisms of how to get good at racing is actually quite similar to how you get good at programming. It is about um, finding these fundamental uh, levers and, and, and views upon what it is that are not apparent when you first discover it, right? Like when someone first comes to programming, they're like, oh, just how do I make this thing work, right? And then you learn like, oh, it's not just about making it work, although clearly that's important. It's also about making it right, about making it fast, about making it understandable, about all these other optimizations and edits you can do in the original, right? So I think about becoming a better race car driver is editing my race car style. You, I go out in, in a race car for the first time. You don't have an eye for it. You don't know what understeer is. You don't know what oversteer is. You learn the vocabulary of racing. You learn the concepts of it. You learn the physics model of, of how a race car operates, the, the four contact patches, the tires, their relationship with grip. All these things um, are part of building your skills as a, as a race car driver. And that's kind of the intellectual, the learning part of it. And then the other part of it that I found to be immensely comparable is the access to flow. When programming is just right and you are facing a problem that's just beyond your current capacity or is really tickling all your talents in the right way, you have the opportunity to enter the state of flow where you forget time and space somewhat for for a moment and you are just completely engrossed in the problem at hand and that state of flow is something that's been observed there's a wonderful uh, book on this topic simply called flow that details how this happens when it happens and just as importantly what it leads to which is moments of pure happiness when scientists uh, studied this phenomenon of flow, it actually came out of studying happiness. It came out of asking a lot of people, like, when were you most satisfied as a human being? When were you most ecstatic? When were you most happy? And it turned out to be these moments of flow. It turned out to be these moments of exercising your capacities in such a way that, like, just beyond your, your, your reach, it really just fires all your neurons at the same time. You're completely engrossed. You forget everything else. These are moments of true bliss. And I felt a lot of those moments programming. This was essentially why Ruby proved to be so addictive to me. Because when I first encountered Ruby, it was basically all flow all the time. right? And this is what I found in racing as well, particularly uh, learning racing. That when you're in a race car, and certainly before you are an expert in driving a race car, it requires all your faculties. There is no time to think about, oh, what should I have for dinner tonight? Or what should I watch a show tomorrow? No, you are literally trying to survive. 
as in if you fuck it up badly enough, you will get seriously hurt, which is a great way to focus your attention on the task at hand. And it's also just incredibly satisfying. There's some that, that satisfaction of entering that flow state and being um, in one with the car. Like it's almost like your your conscious self dissipates and you are just the moment. And that sensation is intoxicating. It, it is in many ways like a drug, like a natural drug. So from both of those angles, I found race car driving to be um, many of the best things I liked about programming, even if they seem to be very far apart. So thanks. My girlfriend really has to listen to this episode because she partly doesn't understand the those moments of flow when you are also in a way addicted to work. How does that work in your private life? I think you have three kids uh, and a wife, right? Yes. And this was one of the things that I think perhaps is most unique about the advocacy both Jason and I have done on the company culture productivity side of things was that from the very outset, of both our collaboration and all our work on Basecamp and the majority of my work on Ruby and Rails, it was never a all-in, all-the-time endeavor. We never worked 100-hour weeks. We never did any of the traditional sacrifice-everything heroics that the standard entrepreneurial myths would tell you are required in order to have success. In fact, we started out from the get-go saying, 40 hours is enough. So you can have these very intense moments of flow, of joy in your work without it becoming the all-consuming everything. Because the other fact here is no one is in a state of flow for 12 hours in a row. No one is even in a state of flow barely for eight hours in a row. I think the longest stretch of time I've ever been in a pure state of flow is probably three or four hours. Doesn't mean sometimes you can't get more of that out of a day, but it is such an intense period. You don't need that many hours. The quality of the hours is really what matters. It's not whether you have a hundred of them. Um, in fact, when we started working on Basecamp, this pivotal project that got everything going, I was working 15 hours a week, not a day, a week, 15 hours a week was the amount of time that I was spending building Basecamp because that was the amount of time I had available. I was still a student at the Copenhagen Business School. I had other things going on. Um, I wasn't interested in a life that was just one thing. I think that's perhaps the other factor here is like, oh, how do you get into race car driving when you're also programming and you're running a company? Well, because I fucking have free time, right? Because it's not the only goddamn thing I do. I don't just build a company or write code. Uh, that's what I do when I work and I work about 40 hours a week and that leaves a lot of time left over. There is more waking hours in a week than, than the 40. So race car driving was something I largely fit in on the weekends, for example, or sometimes I would take time off to do it. And that's completely compatible. It is an incredibly damaging myth that to become good at anything, You have to be all in all the time. In fact, I'd say for a lot of people, it's uh, counterproductive. They end up very myopic. They end up um, unable to connect these other parts of both 
life and feels together. And for me, for example, programming has always felt like a very close cousin to writing. And I spend a lot of time writing, writing books, writing blog posts, writing conference talks, writing tweets, writing all sorts of things. And becoming a better writer in those fields absolutely made me a better programmer. No doubt about it. If I had simply taken all the time I've spent writing prose and invested that time into programming instead, I would have come out the other side a worse programmer. So there's not a linear relationship here between the number of hours you invest into something and how could you become. It's about which kinds of lessons you apply in, in which ways you apply them. And I think that's a counterintuitive notion. We have this idea that, of course, more is just better. So more hours invested into one thing, of course, you should do that if you want to be the best at something. And first of all, you're not going to be the best, right? Literally, the definition of the best is like the number one. I don't have any interest in being number one. I don't want to be the best programmer in the world. I want to be a good programmer. Great, even. Let's let's stretch it that far into the land of arrogance and hybris here. But that is a very different idea than being the best. The best, when people think of that, they think of, I don't know, Michael Jordan in his glory years at, at Chicago Bulls, someone who's just an incarnation of number one. You know what? I don't want the life of a number one. And that totally is the all-in, all-the-time investment required. If you want to be um, Michael Jordan or, or Michael Schumacher or anyone else who becomes uh, number one in their field, you have to, in many ways, give up everything else. And we look at that as just such a valiant effort, right? Wow, they're so brave. They're so committed. They're so dedicated. They're willing to give up everything else. Oh, I wish I could be that person. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's a fucked up life in many substantial ways. And the people who go down that route are unique individuals who demand our pity as much as our admiration. I was not interested in that. So from the get-go, we've led a far more balanced life, work life approach to everything where I can be incredibly passionate about programming. And then I can also close my laptop at five o'clock. These things are not incompatible. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't moments or short periods or bursts or something where you have, I don't know, excess energy and you want to put that into something. But for me, that would usually run on the scale of maybe a week, maybe two weeks. It was never years. This idea of compressing your entire working life because you're pursuing a startup or, or something else into, I don't know, an overworking decade or an overworking five years just seemed completely and profoundly wasteful in the most uh, central, essential word of, or, or sense of that word that is in, I'm wasting my life. I'm going to look back upon my 20s, for example. If my 20s had been all about Ruby all the time, and then I'm fucking 41 right now, I would have looked back on that decade and thought like, jeez, maybe I should have tried some other shit, right? How the fuck would I have gotten into race car driving if all I'd done was program all the time? 
Um, and what would I have gotten out of that? That's the other thing. There's such diminishing returns to becoming the best, right? If you take someone who's the very, very best at what they do, they're usually, I don't know, 0.1% better than number two. Maybe they're even only 0.1% better than number 10. The margins at the very top of the pyramid are incredibly small, right? And the effort it takes to go from being simply 99% as good as, as the best to being the actual best is completely off the scales. So you can actually become really fucking good at a lot of things to the level of, let's say, the 90th percentile um, with like, what, 5% of the effort? That appeals to me. That kind of bargain totally appeals to me. Like, do you know what? I can become a pretty good photographer by investing 5 or 10% of the effort of, of a truly great photographer. I can become a pretty good race car driver by doing the same. I can become a pretty good writer. I can become a pretty good programmer. I can become a pretty good business people. And I can be all of those things at the same time for less effort than what it, it takes to become truly the number one in the field. Do you know what? Seems like a great deal. I'll take it. Good, good. <laughs> I think also the the beginning of this pandemic has has teached us a lot on on effectiveness. Um, so at, at least myself, when the kindergartens were closed and you actually had to spend like half of your day with, with your kids, was it the same for you, or were you already did you already know that you only need maybe twenty hours to be effective? Was it was that the case? Yes, it was. And it was because of that experience I told you about creating Basecamp on 15 hours a week. One of the great revelations of work for me was moving from working on Basecamp 15 hours a week to 40 hours a week, right? I went from Basecamp was a side project, something I did next to school and whatever else was going on to Basecamp is my full-time job and I'm doing it all the time. You would think I would have gotten so much more done. Right? 15 hours a week, 40 hours a week. So much more time. I can get so much more done. Absolutely fucking not. Right? No way did I get that much more done. No way did I even get close to twice as much done, jumping from 15 hours a week to 40 hours a week. So that lesson was a very stark um, instruction in the diminishing returns of time. And the notion that hours are not equal. Hours have quality, and that quality may be high or it may be low. If you have eight hours in a day, and that day is constantly interrupted with meetings or checking Twitter or checking your chat or checking a thousand other things, the quality of those eight hours is shit. You might very well get to the end of the day after eight hours. Eight hours is a long time, right? You can fly. I just flew from New York to Copenhagen in six and a half hours. It felt like it was kind of a long flight. And that wasn't even one work day, right? Eight hours is a long fucking time. But you can still, and many people do, every day get to the end of that. End of eight hours think, what did I get done? What happened today? I guess I had a meeting. We talked about the thing. And then I had another thing. And I chimed in on three chats. Fuck, I didn't get anything done. I did not move forward. I made no progress. And then I could look at the 15 hours I had a week on Basecamp. And I went, in the course of six months, working 15 hours a week, 
we ended up creating a piece of software that has made hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, built a company that has lasted 17 years, and I was the only programmer doing that. I'm not saying that like, oh, man, that's because you were so fucking heroic or an expert programmer. No, it was because that was enough time. Spent well, 15 hours a week is plenty, which is the other interesting part here that relates back to this discussion we had about sacrifice. A lot of people think about, oh, if I want to start something new, I have to quit my job and I have to risk everything. No, you don't. You could also just start it on the side because the value of those early hours is so much more than the value of those later hours. So if you are able to take five, 10 hours a week and dedicate to something, um, you can make a tremendous amount of progress if you spend those hours well. So once you realize that, that there is a diminishing return on hours, that uh, 40 hours is already a hell of a lot of time, um, it's very easy to see that working 80 hours a week or 100 hours a week is a complete and utter nonsense. And that the vast majority of people who ever try that end up deluding themselves into thinking they're truly effective simply because of the tremendous sacrifice that it is involved that cannot psychologically be seen as a waste, right? Like, of course, this is worth it because I've given up everything. So if it wasn't, why the fuck did I give up everything? Why don't I have any friends? Why don't I work out? Why don't I have any hobbies? Why are all my eggs in this one damn basket? Um, oh, it must be because it was worth it. Must be because unless I did all of this, I would have failed. Bullshit. <laughs> so I have a little anecdote. So I recently discovered the do not disturb function in, in macOS, which I think costed me a few meetings, but I had quite a productive afternoon uh, through just having zero zero notifications that was brilliant <laughs> just have to remember to turning it off again uh, but it's it's like a drug notifications are like a drug but also also not having notifications and just having quality time is is, is like a drug so uh, one personal question is, do, do you have a, a smartwatch i do and i use it only when i work out because for exactly that reason the number one self-care principle I apply to my electronics is to turn off all notifications. And this is how we built even um, our new email product. Hey, so hey.com is our new email product. The thing I've been spending the last, what, two years working on. Um, one of its, the first features we built in was an anti-feature, a thing that did not ex or does not exist. There's no notifications by default on hey. You don't get a notification when you get a new email. There's not a little counter on the icon that tells you how many fucking unread emails you have because that stuff is absolute poison. It is absolute poison for your attention. It's absolute poison for your ability to string together long stretches of uninterrupted time, which is the super fuel of creativity. So why the fuck would we build that into things? I think so much of technology today is created the way it is Because the way the people who operate that technology are being rewarded is on engagement. You measure things like, oh, how much time a day did someone spend in my app? How many times did they open it during the day? And these things are seen as metrics you're supposed to drive up, right? 
our goal for both Basecamp and Hey have been to drive them down, <laughs> right? The fewer times a day that you check email, the better it is. This is one of the things I've learned building Hey is that even I, knowing all this, working on this, having this thesis of productivity, was using email in a thoroughly unproductive way for probably more than a decade. Part of that came from using Gmail, which is a horrendous tool for keeping your composure and productivity because it's built around the same engagement metrics and notifications, all of that bullshit, and then pairing it within just as damaging methodology of dealing with your inbox, which is essentially the um, GTD approach, getting things done, that you should deal with everything as soon as it comes in, so that it's off your plate, and only if it takes two minutes or more should you put it in a pile to, to deal with it separately. I was very proud for many years that I ran Inbox Zero. I was so fucking productive. I get back to all my emails. Inbox Zero, right? Without taking a step back and thinking, what? Why? Why am I running Inbox Zero? Why am I giving strangers the opportunity to interrupt me at any moment in the day and then get my undivided fucking attention for however many minutes it takes to reply so that I can get the engagement hit of saying, oh, I'm such a good person because I run Inbox Zero. That is just profoundly nonsense. So thankfully... (laughs) We realized this as we were building Hay, and we built the entire email system around that principle. Now, for the vast majority of people, I will reply to email about twice a week. Hay has this function called uh, literally reply later, which is as soon as something comes in and I... Well, first of all, not as soon as something comes in, because I don't know when as soon as something comes in, because there's no notification to tell me about as soon as something comes in. When I check my email a few times a day and there's shit in my inbox, um, I go through my inbox incredibly quickly. I don't even read the majority of things. There's like the summary of the of the thing. And I can just see like, oh, I'm writing you to. Yeah, OK, I don't need to respond to that right now. Right. Almost everything. Ninety nine percent of everything that hits your inbox is not something that requires an answer within the next five minutes. In fact, 90% at least of everything that hits my inbox can get a reply in a week and it'll be fine. So that is what I do now. And this also comes to you asking me, do, do you have a smartwatch, right? And no, because it is the incarnation of all this. The smartwatch is the perversity of thinking we don't have enough notifications in our lives. They're not interruptive enough. They just buzz your pocket. No, no, no. If they buzzed your wrist and you could constantly glance at that fucking thing, then you'd truly be on top of things, right? It's it's madness. And I'd actually say it's worse than madness. The default settings, as most technology ships in terms of notifications, are abusive. It's absolutely abusive. And to some extent, it feels like it should be illegal, right? Like at least there should be warning labels in the same way that you buy a pack of cigarettes in Denmark, you get a lovely picture of a set of black tarred lungs. That's the cover of the cigarette box, right? Because we're trying to tell people, do you know what? Okay, if you want to fucking smoke, you smoke, but it's probably going to kill you. And your lungs are going to end up looking like this. So at least you should know that going in, right? Where are the fucking warning labels on an iPhone box or an Apple Watch box telling you, you know what? If you run this 
wretched machine as at its default settings of notifications, you're kind of going to destroy your brain. Here's a brain, and we should have something that looks like all gray and mushy on default settings of notifications in modern life. If you count up the number of notifications most people would get if they're not only have one of these devices running at default uh, setting, they also have social media installed, right? So they have, I don't know, Instagram or whatever. Every single fucking time someone likes their photo, their thing buzzes. How is that not torture? Like, I, it just seems, anyway, uh, I have a smartwatch. I use it for working out because it is quite convenient to be able to tell how long your plank is supposed to hold when you don't have someone else uh, running time for you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> one more question on email and hey. Um, uh, what if someone is actually paid for answering emails? Let's say you're working in sales or you're working as a project manager. What, what would you recommend then? Uh, I mean, does that concept work out then? Well, first of all, <laughs> I'm being clear here. I was going to say my condolences. Um, To, to people who have to work in, in such a way that these are the metrics that they're um, targeting. About. I don't think it even necessarily works um, that the best salespeople are the salespeople who send the fastest emails. No. I mean, I'm the recipient of a lot of salespeople. And I can tell you that the people who I can read are the kind of people who send the most emails every day are usually the most annoying fucks that I don't want anything to deal with. Right? I, I don't dispute the fact that like spam if you send enough shit there's going to be some percentage that turns into a meeting and some percentage of that turns into a order and some like there's a pipeline right and you can think if you just pour enough shit in at the top that pipeline is going to work out for you and, and maybe it does um i have problems with with that approach um and we did not build hey for them That's not to say that you can't be a salesperson using here. You absolutely can. I'd say um, the sort of conscientious salespeople who, who are not taking the shotgun approach, right? Like, let's just spray as many bullets as fast as we possibly can, uh, can absolutely find a home in hay. But um, it wasn't the prime persona we built it for. We built it more for or not even more, we build it pretty much exclusively for the email experience that Jason and I have as the two people at Basecamp who send and receive the most email every day and where the largest portion of our job at the company is, is, is about that, right? I send and receive a tremendous amount of email um, every day. And doing that in a better way was probably one of the biggest improvements I could make to my productivity. We'd already tackled like project management and how to deal with things inside of our company, how we communicate. We do all that stuff through Basecamp, right? And in fact, one of the reasons we didn't really worry too much about email for a, a, a long time as something we were going to tackle was because we don't really use email inside of Basecamp. Um, but we use email a hell of a lot outside of Basecamp, right? Like email is the glue that ties organizations together. You, you can get another organization on Basecamp, but it requires a quite um, sort of intimate relationship in, to, in some extent versus email is the thing you just send to anyone, 
right? And and that's what's so so great about it. So email is how we talk to lawyers and accountants and journalists and fans and organizers and podcast hosts and all these other things that go into dealing with um, running a company. So we felt like, do you know what? Uh, there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people like that who use email in very similar ways to us and who are ready for something else than the stale uh, approach that has been the status quo for, for however long it's been. So this is what we try always to design software for, by the way. We don't do focus groups. We don't do kind of like, oh, I wonder what we should build today. Let's just go ask a bunch of customers what they would want. And then we go build that. Now we build software that we want in the world because that's how we believe we can make the best software. That doesn't mean you can't listen. Doesn't mean you can't then talk to customers once you have something and get the reactions to it and learn from it and improve and all these other things. But from the outset, um, the only way I know how to build good software is to solve my own problems. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, MongoDB. MongoDB is the database that developers love. It's simple to manage, scale, and it stores JSON documents instead of columns or rows. The folks at MongoDB offer a special free education program. They teach you on how to operate it in the cloud, how to use it for machine learning purposes, how to integrate it into your serverless stack. Very interesting stuff. They are hosting a virtual German live event happening on the 8th of December. If you're interested in attending for free, Just go to mongodb.live and pick your location. But sometimes you could essentially also start with a bit of a discovery phase instead of straight away building software, right? Or how do you think about that? Oh, for sure. I spent, what is that, 25 years in the discovery phase for Hey. That is the amount of time that I've used email before we started working on Hey. So absolutely. Um, I think it's it's good to spend a lot of time with the process you're trying to improve. There's the same thing with uh, Basecamp. We, we had been running and organizing projects for many years prior to that. I had at least 10 years of experience trying to coordinate projects um, remotely with other people prior to making Basecamp. And all of that was the discovery phase to figuring out what do you need. Um, in that case, ironically enough, what we needed was to get out of email, right? Like the... Uh, Offset to building Basecamp was realizing that email is not a good platform for long-running project management with multiple involved parties that come and go. And Basecamp, a centralized place to keep all that stuff, is a much better platform for doing all these things, right? Um, so some of it is realizing what are certain things good at. And email is this universal tool that can be used for everything. You can build basically everything on top of email. And people have tried to build just about everything on top of email. Doesn't mean it's good at that. Right? Email is wonderful at a lot of things. And I think, in fact, one of the other reasons we got interested in building Hey was this realization that email wasn't getting enough credit. Everyone was so excited about chat tools, right? And instant messaging tools and WhatsApp and iMessage and uh, Slack and, and other sort of instant chat tools. And we came to the realization, do you know what? That's a blind alley productivity-wise and mental health-wise. This idea that you should process all information one line at a time, staccato in real time, terrible idea. 
email got the fundamentals right. Long form asynchronous communication. Someone sits down and they fucking write complete sentences, forming paragraphs, comprising entire ideas. And they don't hit send until they fucking read it over and considered whether that is a good idea, whether that's a good pitch, whether that's something that you should go with. And then when someone receives it, they don't have to reply in 30 seconds. They can take five minutes or five hours or two days. And they can actually let their brain process um, these concepts in such a way that their response is not only articulate, it's well-considered, it's intelligent and creative. And I think we're currently destroying a lot of that intelligence and creativity by forcing so much of collaboration into one line at a time thinking. No one is that great on their feet. Have you ever seen a stand-up comedian try new material? They suck, right? You got to fucking practice your ideas. You got to practice your stuff. You can't just come up with shit on the fly all the time, and then it's all going to be golden nuggets. No, the vast majority of people, they need an editing phase where they think, oh, I have this great idea. Then they write it down, and then they realize, oh, shit, it wasn't that great of an idea. Never mind, delete, right? Or... It was a kernel of a great idea, but it has to go through three revisions of thought before it truly is a great idea. So email gets all these things right in a fundamental way that is deeply worth protecting and has been under tremendous stress from the assault of social media, chat tools, and instant messaging. And that's a regression we wanted to arrest and turn around to some extent to rehabilitate email. Because, I mean, let's also be fair, email also turned to shit for all sorts of other reasons, right? Um, some of the reasons were the way email clients were designed. Some of the uh, reasons were because email had this bizarre setup where if you just have the email address of someone, you can send them an email and instantly get their attention. What? Like you spell it out today and it sounds absolutely perverse. It's like uh, just your phone constantly ringing with random strangers wanting to talk to you and tell you shit. Okay, now is maybe not a good time. I don't know. Um, so this idea, that's why we put the screener in place, this idea that your inbox is a sanctuary of stuff you actually want, not all the other crap that ends up filling your email. So there are all these reasons for why email had gotten a bad rep, but the fundamentals just needed to be dusted off. There was absolutely a diamond under all this shit. And if we just took the shit away, we'd be left with a diamond. So so you took the shit away. And is it possible for companies also to use Hey? Do they all have to migrate to, to Hey.com? or? Yes, so we just launched um, Hey for Work. We're in in a invite uh, phase right now. We've just onboarded the first uh, number of companies on it. Company email is in many ways both harder and easier. It's easy in the sense that like you have to run the same system. Like that's just how email works. If you want to have um, a custom domain, which all companies do, like we have at basecamp.com or at yourcompany.com, like that domain has to point somewhere. And in most cases, it points to um, one centralized service, and then everyone kind of used that. Even if they could perhaps use their own individual clients, they're still using the same centralized system. So if your company is running on Gmail, you're all running on Gmail, whether you use Mail app or, or whatever to, to check it. So we're similar in that way. Where we are different is that Hey has its own set of clients. All these innovations and leveled ups we've added to email were not possible inside the IMAP protocol. 
right? Like IMAP and POP3 and the other protocol, they're great. They're just not as good as SMTP. SMTP to me is like um, HTTP, right? You don't know what's producing the HTML on the other side. Like that's behind the walls, right? Like you could be writing Ruby even when no one else is using Ruby. And as long as it answers HTML over HTTP, no one is any the wiser, right? This is how you can make huge progress in development tooling and satisfaction of developers and also because you have this freedom to do it. Email is quite similar. SMTP is HTTP, but what's behind the wall, um, if you are just constraining yourself to IMAP, you're severely limited in what you're able to do because it has to fit into the paradigms that are already established. And there are ways you can hack it and there are ways you can make it better, but we thought, hey, we have some fundamentally new ideas that we want to implement that are not easily mappable to IMAP. And who gives a fuck about IMAP, to be frank here? What I give a fuck about is this MTP, the fact that two email servers can talk to each other and you don't know what's running on the other side. You don't know what's, what's behind that. And, and that is um, 90% of the open standards part of email that's worth preserving. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no value to IMAP and POP3, and I respect the idea that you can have separate clients, and there's something good to that, um, but that's also what's already there. Why do we need another IMAP server? There's about 5 billion out there, and there's tons of them running. Like We have nothing new to offer on that, uh, on that level. So if we want to bring something new, let's bring something new, and let's talk SMTP, and let's be a um, respectful participant in the email ecosystem it's of course it's not just smtp there's a billion other open standards from dkim and dmark and all these other things we're today using to authorize emails and sign them and make sure they're coming from the right people and those other stuff and we do all those things um we just don't run imap on on the inside so so do i have to switch my domain then over to your server or is that can i just put it on top You have to switch. So um, we're not okay. an email client. We're an email service. So it's, it's kind of like, can I okay. use Gmail to check my Hotmail? Mm, sort of. You can set up a forward. You could do that. You can do that with um, with Hey as well. And, and some people do that. They just have a forward set up. But if you really want to use Hey, you should use Hey. And that's the great thing about domains, by the way. Um, and why, while we launched Hey just with Hey.com, I am a huge fan of domain names because they give you portability, which for a company in particular, like you can choose to switch from Gmail to Hey, and it'll take you not very long at all because you'll just move it over. And all the people you're talking to, they won't be any wiser. This is the magic of like what's behind the firewall thing, right? Like what's behind at yourcompany.com. No one knows. You can talk to your accountant and, and you switch your email system behind the scenes. They don't know. You just have a better email system. And there's no loss of continuity in, in that regard. Okay. Um, thanks a lot. Yeah, I'd love to try it out. Um, but maybe coming from that, um, uh, more towards uh, your company culture and your and your team size. So I think you're also a strong advocate on limiting the total number of employees at your company. Is that right? Yes. Um, certainly on a personal level, simply because I do not enjoy working at large companies. I do not enjoy running large companies. Um, so we have optimized Basecamp for both of those factors by being a small company. 
and I mean, small is a little bit in parentheses. For a long time, we were four people. And then for a long time, we were eight people. And today we're about 60 people. So we're not that small, but we are far smaller than if you're 300 or 3,000 or 30,000. And I have no interest in chasing any of those uh, numbers because I like a structure where we don't have to slice everything into a thousand layers, right? Like the more layers you have in it, I understand why you need to do that when you have 10,000 people. You need five layers of management because that's the only way you can make sense of anything because good teams can't be that big. In fact, my favorite team size is three people. That's the, in my experience, essentially the perfect team size. If you have enough productivity in your tooling and your approach to make three people capable of doing stuff. Now, not without surprise, the implementational team of Basecamp V1 was ta-da, three people. So we had this form uh, uh, formative experience of building an entire business off three people. And, and then it was not that hard to say, Do you know what, if we have to build another feature, Perhaps three people is also sufficient. We built an entire fucking company off three people um, in terms of the implementation. So you could probably build a feature with three people and three people is great. There's no, I mean, it's kind of like that chart. Uh, is it Metcalf's law or something about the complexity of connection goes up exponentially with the number of nodes that you have? Yes, that is why it is very difficult to do management on big teams. And Lots of people go like, oh, well, we got to crack that knot. We got to solve that complexity. That is a great encapsulation of my entire approach to both technology and organizational structures. No. Instead of trying to solve tremendous complexity and come up with these intricate schemes on how to deal with complexity, reduce the complexity. <laughs> it sounds so simple, it almost shouldn't work. But if you have a simple team, you only need simple principles. You only need simple practices. If you have a very big and very complicated team, and if you have a very big and very complicated company, you need very complicated, convoluted processes and sign-offs and all the other bullshit that people rightfully usually end up hating. So don't do that, right? Like I understand that that is an answer that is so simple that most people refuse to accept it's even a possibility. What do you mean you can't do that? You got to grow, 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 right? Like the whole purpose of company beings is to grow. And like we went, no, doesn't have to be. And when we were around 50 people, which we were, what's that, five, six years ago, we said, this is enough. I, I don't want a bigger company. Let's just not grow. If you would inherit now, let's say you, you would become the CTO of Zalando now, um, a company that has, I think, 1,500 engineers and product people. What would you do? Quit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean that legitimately. I, I would, because that's not a problem I'm interested in solving. That doesn't mean that any of the lessons that we've derived from our approach can't work there. And the other thing about big companies is they're usually not just big companies. They're a bunch of smaller teams. So individual teams can certainly adopt similar approaches that that we've used either in software or in methodology or so on and so forth. But as just in a personal level, that level of scale has no interest to me. I, this is one of the things that often befuddles people I, uh, who are trapped in the capitalist regime is the thinking that like, I wouldn't trade my company for just about any other company in the world. 
And people go, well, what if Mark Zuckerberg said you could trade straight up for Facebook? I mean, that's worth like half a trillion dollars. Surely you would do that. And I'm like, have you fucking seen Mark Zuckerberg? Did that seem like a nice, well-adjusted, happy person? Would you want Mark Zuckerberg's fucking seat in the world right now? I could not. Well, I could, but hyperbolically, I could not think of a worse place to fucking sit right now. I'd hate that job. And by extension, I'd hate my life. Why the fuck would I trade a job that I love and a life I'm very pleased with just so I could, what, have some more money and then I could get a shitty existence? Isn't the whole fucking point of getting a lot of money that you don't have to suffer through a shitty existence? So, no, not interested. Coming back to the stuff you love, um, I mean, you said you, you have uh, 60 people. Um, I think that also means that you have to cu uh, cut like uh, people into teams. Um, you then rely on autonomous small teams like the, the Spotify, the so-called Spotify model and squads and so on. Or is it also bullshit? Um, see how to... So I like a lot of things about Spotify. One of the things I like the most about Spotify is the fact that they're pushing forward with a antitrust case in the EU um, about uh, Apple. So let's get that out of the way before I'm ripping into their uh, development model. First of all, this, the Spotify model, as I understand it, is actually uh, bullshit, as in it does not exist even at Spotify. Um, this, this Spotify organization does not follow the Spotify model. There's been some retrospectives on this, on this notion. Second of all, this, the Spotify model to a large extent is um, a rebranding of existing organizational principles, including functional or matrix structures and, and so forth. So not a lot of news under the sun. <laughs> one of the justifications I saw in one of these breakdowns of the Spotify model was literally like, These old um, old organizational principles, they, they sound old. What if we called them something cool? What if we called them squads? Like, okay, whatever floats your fucking boat, man. Um, so uh, anyway, that's kind of almost an aside. Yes, I think um, to a large extent, self-organizing teams is a great idea, but not universally so. Um, at Basecamp, We have two teams in particular that are incredibly autonomous. And they're, surprise, surprise, three people each. They are each of our mobile teams. So we have an Android team and we have an iOS team. Both of them are made up of two developers and one designer. And they're very autonomous. As in, they just essentially just get vague, like, hey, this is where we're trying to go. And then they figure out where we're to go. But when it comes to the core product, as we call it, which for us is the center of things, which is the web, um, We have separate teams, but they're not 100% autonomous. They're still driven by essentially a product vision that comes from Jason at the top of the pyramid in terms of product management. It's informed by both the teams and by me and some other people in the team, but they're not 100% autonomous. And I don't think that there's any sort of unique um, stilling value in just uh, let's make everyone run around as though there's no overarching vision for where we want to go. Mm. Now, autonomous is a very large spectrum. And some people are so not autonomous that everything is drilled down like, oh, this is exactly what you have to do. Here's 15 
I don't know, tickets in our ticketing system that you have to check off through the next sprint and that's your work and that's what you're supposed to do. Mm, that's not how we approach it. So in that sense, we are quite autonomous. We follow a methodology that we christened Shape Up that talks about how to have product vision, have product management while delegating a lot of the implementational and detailed design uh, choices to the individual teams. So that's at basecamp.com slash shape up, which really talks about how we, we line all that stuff up. Um, and it is a bit of a delicate balance, but I, I think it, it's kind of like um, falling in love with this notion of a flat organization, right? Like, Oh, if we just make everything flat and if we don't have any hierarchy at all, everything is just going to be wonderful. And it seems on its face, perhaps like a great egalitarian model and approach to things and everyone is equal and everyone does whatever they want to do. And then you realize it, uh, well, it doesn't work <laughs> because there's always authority, whether you have it spelled out or whether you have it implicit. And when you have it implicit, it's often way worse than when you have it spelled out. And there's been a lot of interesting studies on what basically happens in flat organizations. And what usually happens is that they develop a hierarchy, just no one says what it is, right? Like it's this fluid behind the scenes kind of things that doesn't actually help people. So maybe the empowered team is the better term than uh, the autonomous team, right? Yeah, I think these labels, though, are so... Um, open to interpretation that they aren't actually useful. And we should try to be far more specific when we talk about what we actually want to do. What, what level of decisions should the team make for themselves? And what level of direction should they receive from, from, from somewhere else? And that is a spectrum. And what we've tried to do in Shape Up is say like, hey, here's a fairly specific set of guidelines on how we divide that responsibilities. And it shifts somewhat, right? Like, as I said, even the base camp, where the two mobile teams we have, they set the, mo the, the majority of their own direction, their own timelines and their own whatever. Um, and then you go over to the core product and far more of that direction comes from a product management um, perspective. So it it's one of those areas even though i utterly hate the term where you to some extent have to say it depends now you should not just say it depends it's one of the one of the things i absolutely hate the most in both technical and organizational discussions is when people go like oh well there's pros and cons with everything and like everything is just a trade off you're not saying anything right like anyone can sit and say that well everything's just a trade off well it, okay well how does that help me it doesn't help me at all be more specific um, that's what we try to do in shape up is to be specific. There are trade offs, but unless you spell them out and say when they apply and when they don't apply, you're not helping anyone. And I guess shape up also doesn't introduce microservices into Basecamp, right? <laughs> yeah. Microservices is one of those approaches that actually, uh, it's funny. We just talked about organizational mapping is an organizational mapping, right? Like at least in my presumption, the validity of services-oriented architectures, whether you call it SOA, as we used to do, um, what is that, 10 years ago now, or you call it microservices today, which is sort of 
much of the same thing, just applied at a scale where it doesn't actually work, um, is, is, is sort of another thing. So, no, not a big fan of microservices, um, largely because I don't run a company that requires microservices. We, we are not so big as to require the partitioning of our systems into tiny little slices um, on a majority basis, right? Like I'm a huge fan of the majestic monolith, a single system that an individual could actually understand. That's the thing you have to realize with all of these ways of architecting your system. At the end of the day, you have the same intrinsic complexity. You're just shoving it around. And what I'm interested in, first and foremost, is what does it take to understand all of it, right? Someone who's capable of in, in understanding the entirety of the uh, inherent complexity in an application is so much better off in terms of applying wide-ranging uh, architectural upgrades because they see sort of patterns and things that we can simplify and make better, Um than they are if, like, oh, I just understand this little slice over here. Now, I understand if you run Amazon.com or AWS, no one can understand it all, right? Once you get to that scale, you do surpass the capacity of a single individual to understand the entire system. But do you know what? There aren't that many systems like that. The vast, vast majority of systems, no matter how much architects like to dilute themselves into thinking otherwise, can be reduced to fit its inherent complexity into the brain of one person. Now, that requires work, refactoring, insight, all these editorial principles apply to the domain that you're working in. And there's a version of most software that doesn't fit in the mind of one person. Because like the way you've chosen to make it no longer fits in the mind of one person. Microservices is a great way of getting there. Um, and then, there's another version of that that does fit into the mind of one person. I've gone through this um, sort of thing with Basecamp several times. Basecamp in its three incarnations does sort of deals with the same problem domain, right? We've done Basecamp three times, rewritten it from scratch three times. It's the same problem domain. We've chosen different approaches to deal with how some of the things are, but through the generations, and particularly the jump from Basecamp 2 to Basecamp 3, we were able to apply some wide-ranging architectural simplifications that really shrunk the inherent complexity of understanding the code, just that it much better fit into the brain of a single individual, and just that we were actually able to do more things and still have the system fit into the brain of a single individual. But I'm also utterly convinced that there is a version of Basecamp 3 built perhaps with uh, 42 different microservices that does not at all fit into the mind of a single person, right? And this is the fallacy often of how we discuss technology. We see the inherent complexity on its expression code as sort of fixed, right? We can't really tackle the complexity. We can just shove it around. We can shove it into some more microservices or we cannot do that. Well, we can't do anything about the underlying complexity. Um, wow, what a lack of ambition. What a lack of aspiration. Like that whole idea, like how do we take a problem domain and reduce its complexity and deal with it and come up with some conceptual models for how to think about it? That's why I got into programming in the first place. Are you telling me that there is no 
there's no span there, but there's no difference in, um, in, in kind of how well you can do that. Of course there is. And the better you do it, um, the simpler the tools can be, right? It comes back to, to, to the same idea of, um, there's a way to build a company on 15 hours a week, right? That, that someone else might have taken 120 hours a week to, to build. You can judo the problems themselves, which is why one of my favorite books of all times is a book called Are Your Lights On? Um, by Gerald M. Weinberg, who's also one of my favorite writers of all time, who is a system analyst in its most fundamental um, sense. He's written a bunch of great books, but Are Your Lights On? is a very short book. I think it's like 100 pages or something. That's all about restating the problems, right? You're presented with a problem that seems like a very difficult, hard problem that might take a lot of shit to do. And you think about that problem. You come up with some conceptual models. Hopefully you have some uh, idea breakthroughs. And all of a sudden that problem is not that complicated anymore. It's not the same problem, right? Like that's worth uh, discussing here too. This is one of the other key insights I think at Basecamp is we have this notion of trading concessions. So at a lot of organization, engineering um, organizations, they take the problem domain as though it's like fucking written on stone tablets. Someone comes down from up high and says the system needs to do this. And then their job is simply to interpret that and like make it so. That is a very unproductive way of working with technology. Much better way of working with technologies. You got a problem coming down from above and you go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's hard to do. If you want me to do it exactly as you've envisioned or as designed on some fucking mock-ups, that's going to be complicated. But you know what? If we tweak that here, if we move this there, if you could live without this one thing and I give you this other thing, we can reduce the complexity of what you're proposing by like 90%. And they go like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's fine. I didn't care about that other screen anyway. And like this part of it wasn't relevant. But this other thing you're suggesting really makes sense. Boom. You've just 10x. This is what the 10x developer is. Right? 10x developer is not someone who just writes 10 times as many lines of code. It's actually the opposite. It's someone who writes 10 times as little code. Because not just because they're these fucking programming geniuses, but because they've restated the problem. So uh, to be clear, at Basecamp, there's no one introducing React or Vue um, uh, for the front-end layer, right? Uh, no, that is very true. One of the Once you've adopted this entire approach we've been talking about as an institutional value, as in like, we're not going to get dragged into this, we're not going to uh, make this overly complex, we have this general limit of saying entire features should be able to build, be built tested and launched by three people within six weeks max, that drives a lot of technology decisions. And it does not leave room for a React Redux monstrosity because it just doesn't have the productivity to do the things we want to do. So we come up with our own tools in many cases to enable us to do these things, to enable us to deliver entire features within six weeks as prescribed by ShapeUp with three people as prescribed by us liking teams of three people and um, having a desire to keep a small team. You just need to do different things, right? This was one of the core insights of Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails was built to stay one person could create Basecamp. Pretty simple, right? But very different from how J2E was built, for example, right? 
there's a lot of other uh, tool chains that are built and forged within very large organizations where the productivity of a single individual is kind of irrelevant, right? Or it's at least not in the top 10 list of concerns for why they're building the way they're building. So you end up with very different tooling when you extract it from large organizations. React and Redux and so on were extracted from very large organizations. And they perhaps work well under those circumstances. I mean, I'll put a question mark even there. But what there's no question mark about in my mind is that they do not work well for organizations the size of, say, Basecamp, trying to build, say, Basecamp that has six different clients for different platforms and, and all these other things. It's just it's not compatible. It's not productive enough. I can't do the things I want to do within the time I want to have it done if I use tools that are built for an entirely different time frame, right? This is one of the core delusions of technology is that small teams should embrace the lessons forged inside huge companies. No. In most cases, they should do the exact opposite. Now, not like there aren't some lessons, particularly the atomic level that we can share across small organizations and large organizations, but there's far more lessons where what you need as a small company is literally the opposite, literally the opposite of what you need at a big company. Architectural mapping onto service-oriented architectures versus monolithic, uh, majestic uh, beings is one of those things, right? You need the opposite. If you have 10,000 developers, okay, a majestic monolith, maybe a little difficult. I'm not sure. I mean, you look at the mono repo that uh, lots of very large organizations use and you go like, eh, you know what, they perhaps saw some values in that. Let's just take that aside. Let's just even take it at face value and just accept that if you have 10,000 developers, you need some sort of services oriented architecture because you need to divide the system into sub-teams and those sub-teams have their own managers and their own reporting structures and you need protocols to talk together and you can't just use method calls, right? If you apply that approach then to a small team, even the team size that we enjoy the most of three people, like, are you fucking crazy? Why the fuck would you replace a method call with a network call? That is the dumbest thing you could possibly do if you have any other option, right? The first rule of distributed systems is don't distribute your systems, right? You only distribute your systems when you literally have no other choice because it is so fucking complicated to deal with. Um, all the failure states are worse. All the operational states are worse. It is just a clusterfuck of complexity that in certain circumstances you are required to take because you have no other choice. But if you have another choice, you're batshit crazy for going down that route. Thanks a lot. Um, so <laughs> coming from from technical technical and organizational um, challenges, maybe to humanity. So if you were not solving big problems at Basecamp, any challenge of humanity you would like to solve right now? First of all, I, I like to believe that I'm small, solving small problems at Basecamp because we have small problems because we're a small organization and, and we're not overly or ridiculously ambitious. Um, but let's just take the, the question at face value. What would I do if I wasn't doing Basecamp? Um, one of the things I like to think is that I do not have the... I don't know if I like to think. One of the things I recognize about myself is that I don't have the... 
<laughs> sounds funny perhaps, but I don't have the megalomaniac tendencies of an Elon Musk. Like, I, I don't need to launch rockets into fucking space. And I don't have an interest in the complexities of making cars drive themselves in cities. So on that level, you can go like, well, I deal with mundane things. I deal with mundane things. It's like, how do you better organize a project? How do you deal with email a little bit better, right? Like these are, in the grand scheme of humanity, incredibly incremental things, incremental changes. And you know what? Totally fine with that. I don't need to leave a mark on the fucking universe um, so large that a rocket can fit through it. It's just not, I'm okay to be part of a um, small improvement of the everyday life of people just doing work and realize that my dent in the universe is to play the small part of that along with many other people. And together we make everything a little bit better all the time. And if you do that for a long enough time, you end up thing with things a lot better. So I guess that's a cop out. I guess it's a cop out that I don't have an overarching um, ambition to cure cancer or colonize, Mar- colonize Mars or anything else like that. I like information systems. I like Ruby. I like programming. I like writing. I get to do all those things in the job that I have. So I think I'm going to keep it. Cool. So you were just talking or referring to Elon Musk. Um, I think Jeff Bezos was one of your, or the only investor at Basecamp. Is that right? Well, he's the only other owner. Uh, I mean, you could call that investor and and some people do. Uh, The reason I quibble with that is because we never took money for the company to run the company. Basecamp from its inception, um, and even before that, 37 Signals was always a profitable company that never needed investor money to run or operate its business. What Jason and I did was to sell each individually a slice of our ownership stakes to uh, hedge our bet in 2005 when what we had was a uh, small business with some potential that totally could have hit the wall and burned in flames. And Bezos came along and said, like, hey, you know what? Uh, here's several million dollars that I would like to give you uh, at a time in your life where you do not have several million dollars or any number of million dollars. <laughs> um, and what I ask in return is a minority stake that has no controlling influence on how you run your company. Um, and you just do what you want to do. And I'm here to um, answer questions, offer some advice along the way, if you're interested. And that was a very, very different deal than every other deal we were offered at the time, which was basically the venture deals, right? Hey, let us give you a ton of money, not to yourself, but let's inject it into the company. We'll hire a bunch of people. We'll blow a bunch of money on marketing. We'll balloon the business to $100 million in revenue as quickly as possible. And then we'll go public. And doesn't that sound great? And I went, no, that sounds fucking horrible. And I'm not interested. So, um, That's how we ended up with, with Bezos on, on, as a co-owner at the company. A decision that seemed very appealing and attractive in 2006, 2020, I have some reservations. Um, not about the structure of the deal, but just the structure of how things panned out when <laughs> Jeff invested in 2006. Uh, Amazon... And him personally, were literally like one fiftieth the size of what they are now. 
right now having Amazon, one of the great big tech monopolists, um, and Jeff Bezos, who's the literally richest man in the world, as part of our sphere is something I have mixed feelings about. Let's just put it like that. And do you meet him every once in a while or is that gone? That's gone. We did for the first six years or something like that, maybe. We usually have, we had a, a meeting once a year or something like that. I think the last time we did that was 2012, maybe 2011, which, I mean, fair enough. Literally, dude's the richest man in the world launching literal rockets into space and running a huge conglomerate, big tech monopolist. Um, other things on his agenda than bothering <laughs> with this tiny investment he made back in 2006 as a hobby to spend his time. So totally fair. <laughs> so um, I still have a little surprise for you. Um, I have my TextMate, old school TextMate editor here. And uh, I know TextMate forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you still use it? Absolutely. I, I Yeah, TextMate um, is... is A little bit like Ruby to me, not quite as much, but um, it's one of the things where I found an editor that I thoroughly and really like. Not only did I find, I helped shape um, with Alan back in, in 2005, help him get the one out the door by making it just like I wanted it. So, of course, I'm going to be kind of biased on that. But it's one of those things where, like, once I find something like that, an editor I really like, I'm not in the market anymore. Just like I'm not in the market for a new programming language. Doesn't mean I can't look at something new. Doesn't mean I can't be inspired by something new. But like I'm not constantly on the hunt for something. When I had to make the switch from TextMate 1 to TextMate 2, and for some reason I couldn't get the font rendering just right, I actually looked at all the other editors again. I did a full tour and I came to the conclusion that I didn't like any of them better than I liked TextMate. And then I figured out how to do the font rendering just right and I was happy as a cat. Okay, let's go back to the question. So I now open up my gem file of my current project and I add a small gem called Time Machine from a private repo uh, hosted on GitHub and I install it. I shoot up a Rails console and type in time travel dot year 2000 and we now have the chance to travel back in time and, and look at young David. He yeah. just celebrated New Year's Eve 2000 and... You now have the chance to uh, whisper something into into young David's ears. What would it be? It's funny. Um, I've gotten this question quite a lot, not as um, beautifully, elaborately put as this, but I often get the question of like, what would you have known? I mean, if you could have known, I'm like, I don't want to know. One of the pure blisses of living life forward is that you don't know everything. If you know the conclusions up front, what's the point of doing the work trying to get there? I think, in fact, it's a demotivating part. So I am very happy that I was blissfully ignorant of so many things back in 2000. I mean, there are some things on more on the human level or organizational level, perhaps, but in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of programming, I would have spoiled the journey. If you would have, it's kind of like, hey, listen, there's this great movie. Let me start out by telling you the ending. Then you're going to be so excited to watch it, right? No, I don't want to know the ending. Don't tell me. I want to fucking experience the movie for the first time. And the bliss of going through all of this, going through Ruby on Rails, going through Basecamp, going through all these other technical things, not knowing what the ending was going to be like, not knowing what the conclusion was going to be like. That is the wonders of life, right? Like if we were just born with all the answers 
just like in a big book, like here's all the answers and they're perfectly accurate and perfectly just and the perfect life would not be nearly as interesting as it is when you don't have all those answers. So, uh, I, I, if, if my old self was leaning into my young self's, uh, face to, to tell me whatever the grand secret was, I'd be like, don't want to know, don't want to know, live life forward. Um, Amor Fati, which is basically love your fate, love whatever winding road it takes and accept that like every twist and turn on the road was, was an interesting challenge. Of course, easy for me fucking to say sitting here on the top of the mountain and saying, like, yeah, everything is fucking great. You should just follow whatever happens. Um, it doesn't always work out like that, but I think that is one of the reasons why you don't have to listen to me on that topic. Um, you can li listen to lots of great philosophers. I like both the Stoics and the Existentialists. And um, they have much the same to say in much more persuasive ways without the bias of um, sitting in a place where, quote unquote, everything worked out. Which, by the way, footnote, of course it didn't. Uh, nothing works out for everyone in all domains of life. And the image that you see of someone on Twitter or Instagram or whatever is a sliver of who they are. And you see the most appealing, reflective sliver because that's the sliver that everyone presents of themselves. And you don't see all the rest. And that ends up fucking with a lot of people's head because they end up just sort of thinking that everyone else has it so much better than they do. And you just don't know. You don't get to look into someone else's skull. You get to know yourself very well because that's the person you have to live with 24-7. You don't get to know other people very well. So um, anyway, that was a <laughs> downer. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to know. I, and I don't think, I mean, e even if I could tell myself something, even if I would want it to know, is there something I could have done to boost whatever? No, because that's the other fallacy I want to reject is that there's like this secret, right? Like if we could just whisper the one thing, if there was just this one insight that you had, like uh, I, I get that answer in, in another form, like what's the one thing you could tell? I, the one thing I could tell is that there is no one thing. If there was one thing, we'd all fucking know it, right? We wouldn't be able to keep that secret. It was just like, there's just one insight. If you just know this one thing, all the doors are going to open. The, the secret would be out. And, and it wouldn't be a thing, right? Like everything is a composium of a billion things. And we can't often deduce what it is. And that's the other thing. We delude ourselves into these narratives often of telling ourselves, oh, the reason why things turned out so well was because I put in such hard work because I was blah, 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 blah. And the thing is, most of the times, it's just a self-grandizing narrative, that we tell our ego to justify why we are where we are. Um, and it's bullshit. And you can't deduce it. And you can look at things and it doesn't mean you can't learn anything or you can't form a hypothesis. But this notion of the grand narrative that has these sort of distinct turning points that really are these pivotal things. And if you had just known those in advance, you could have done so much better. Yeah, I, I don't believe that. Thanks a lot, David. So... It was a pleasure to talk to you. Didn't work out with the swearing, I think. <laughs> no, it didn't. We were quite bad at that. Yes, yes, too fucking hard. <laughs>
Thanks a lot for, for your time and hope to see you again soon. And I think you've at least won a few Hey users. <laughs> and yeah, looking forward to the next time. Um, Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And uh, as always, it's a pleasure talking about all this stuff. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and MongoDB. To learn more about the Fastly services and get first-class support, just visit fastly.com slash alphalist. And to try the new cloud product of MongoDB called MongoDB Atlas, just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started for free.